sitting on her bed with her legs stretched out in front of her and the poison pen letters spread out upon them. The only way Stella could hide them from the warden's gaze was to shift her weight by crossing her legs at the ankle. This she did, one slip-on shoe over the other. As she moved, the letters slid off her lap onto the quilt. There they lay, but by bad fortune, only half hidden between the wall and her left leg. It was sheer bad luck that the director's own letter landed face upwards with its block print eye-catching letters in full sight. Quickly, Stella set her left hand flat upon the envelope. Mrs. Warren, Stella reached behind her with her right hand to shift the pillow, turning her head as she did and scowling with effort. It was an old magician's trick she had read about when she was a girl. When the audience follows the magician's gaze, it misses the palming of the coin or scarves or pigeons. In this case, while Stella grimaced and struggled to adjust her pillow at her back, it was her legs that carried out the trick. She raised them slightly upwards and readjusted them so that her left thigh lay across the letters. Not all of the paper was covered, of course. That would look suspicious, as if she was hiding something. Can I help you with that, Mrs. Ryman? The director stepped forward, but Stella shook her head in polite refusal and then tugged the pillow free. She laid it across her lap, hoping, as she did so without looking down, that even more of the poison pen letters were obscured. Stella said, Mrs. Warren, I'm glad you've come. It's thoughtful of you to make a special trip. Was the director looking at Stella's legs or at the letters? In your busy day. She steadied her breathing. And really, she thought, all this is so unnecessary. I'm an adult. This is my room into which this woman has walked without remembering to knock, counter to what is dictated by Fairmount Manor guidelines and those of the greater civilization outside. Furthermore, having failed to knock, she has not even apologized for her intrusion. She has put herself in the place of an adult and me in the position of a child. I am not a child. Stella drew herself up. I take it, she said in the most lucid manner imaginable, that you have come to give me the key code for the outside door. <laughs> Mrs. Warren said, Actually, a member of the staff told me that you took a letter from my desk, a letter addressed to me personally. Stella stared at Mrs. Warren, who stared at her in turn, stared at the letters tucked under Stella's left leg. Ollie? Reliza? Cheryl? None of them would have ratted on her. It must have been one of those nameless dears whom Stella rarely noticed creeping up behind instead of minding their own business. She remembered the woman standing far down the corridor with her back turned to Stella. Had the woman seen her after all? What other explanation could there be? That letter, 
the director said, pointing at the envelope beneath Stella's hand, has my name on it. In the wake of the director's pronouncement, there followed a silence. Stella felt nausea, faint, and she experienced the disturbing, if imaginary, sensation of having all the blood in her head, neck, and chest empty downwards into her belly. Just when she needed all her faculties about her, her discomfort was both distracting and unwelcome. Memory tugged at her, and she tried to think of what this moment reminded her. It came to her that she was feeling just like ten-year-old Tim Faber must have felt the day she stopped him from leaving the school library. In his hands, inadequately concealed, she had discovered two of her library ink pads and a date stamper. As she had taken them from him, Tim's face had turned pale, illuminating his freckles, and Stella had no doubt that just now her own face had turned pale as well. Now, Mrs. Perdetta Warren asked Stella the same question Stella had asked young Tim Faber all those years ago. Why did you take it? Tim Faber's answer to this question all those years ago had seemed to Stella inadequate to the situation, but now she saw that the boy's words could not be approved upon in any way. So she said what Tim had said. She said, I don't know. She picked Mrs. Warren's letter up and held it out. She knew then how Tim must have felt when she caught him with the ink pads and stampers. Guilty. A little bit relieved. And amazingly, full of hope. Hope that the school librarian, Mrs. Ryman, would understand that notwithstanding the circumstances, Tim was not a bad person. But, Mrs. Warren said, That's really not good enough, Mrs. Ryman. Stella took a deep breath. I can explain, Mrs. Warren. This morning, a very serious event took place in Fairmount Manor. She held out the poison pen letter, and the director took two steps towards the bed. She did not quite snatch the letter out of Stella's hand. Stella was suddenly very tired. She knew she ought to protest, but she did not. Gazing at her name on the envelope, Mrs. Warren held out her hand. The rest of the envelopes, please. One of them's addressed to me, Stella said, more feebly than she meant to. All of them, please. Stella handed hers over with the rest. She wanted to say, you must understand that I'm not a bad person. Thank you, Mrs. Warren said. And now Mrs. Warren was talking about bringing in the police. Stella understood that much, but no more. The woman's words seemed somehow to be overlapping themselves, pulsing and blending like water lilies in one of Monet's paintings. Stella sat on the edge of her bed, her hands clasped tightly in front of her, as if each was keeping track of the other. She waited for the misty landscape 
of the director's words to reach the edge of its frame and stop. When it finally did, Stella said, I haven't done anything, you know. There will be fingerprints, Mrs. Warren turned and walked out of the room. The room door shut behind her with a final click. Stella tried to focus on what the outcome of this business would be. She tried to consider the letters objectively, but she could not. All she could think about was Tim Faber. She remembered how Tim Faber had looked up at her. He had a cowlick that tumbled his hair over one eye and gave him a look of disrespect. It was that look that ired several of her teaching colleagues, who did not know, as she did, his taste for the Biggles books, his love of a hero. When she caught him with the things he had stolen, he had looked at her with his dark eyes and said, I'm not a thief, Mrs. Ryman. Then he had made a terrible face and burst out crying. Stella, who rarely cried, tried again to think about the letters, but she felt an emptiness in the deductive place within her, as if Mrs. Warren had taken that too. Sitting up on her bed, her feet in their slip-on shoes straight out in front of her, she asked aloud, what did I do back then, when Tib Faber burst out crying? But she knew what she had done. She put her arm across his shoulder, sat him down at her desk, and made him a cup of red rose tea. I did that. And Stella, who rarely cried, felt the tears pour down her face. Chapter 34 Unlike the director of Fairmount Manor, Ollie did knock, so Stella had time to wipe her face dry with the corner of her pillowcase. As he entered, she looked up at him and felt an inappropriate laugh bubble up inside her like something rising from the bottom of a swamp. She smothered it with a hand. She had a terrible feeling that if she laughed out loud, she might throw up. Ollie stood nearby, his hands in his pockets, rocking back and forth from heel to toe, toe to heel. He said, You sly dog, you Stella Ryman. <laughs> the hysterical laughter inside her died away. Ollie, it wasn't me. I was trying to find out who did send the letters. It's no skin off my nose, he said with a bemused expression. But what I can't understand is why... You sent the letter I got. Oh, Lord. If she had received a picture of a kitchen knife, what might Ollie have received? A gun? A bomb with a glowing red face of a digital clock? And he thought that she had sent it. Stella swallowed. What did you get? Ollie screwed up his face, his eyes on the ceiling as he dug in his pocket. He pulled out a folded sheet of paper, opened it, and held it up for her to see. She stared at it. A yellow, happy face stared back. She could make nothing of it, but in the circumstances, the silly smile of the yellow fellow seemed quite horrifying, malicious and ominous, even worse than the knife. He tossed the paper down on the bed beside her. 
And he sang, Return to sender, address unknown. I didn't send it, Stella insisted. If Ollie didn't believe her, who would? You'd better head to the office, he said kindly, grinning. And he added, easier to fingerprint you there. Of course my fingerprints were on the letters, Stella said desperately. I was looking at them when she burst in. I was looking for clues. Ollie laughed. The fingerprint thing was a joke. Mrs. Warren's crazy if she thinks anybody's going to take fingerprints from a senile old woman, Stella asked bitterly. Don't be silly, Stella, my Bella, Ollie said. No, they'll take DNA from the envelope lickings. Good, Stella said. It will prove me innocent. The DNA was a joke too, Ollie said as he opened the door. Want me to come with you? No, Stella said firmly. She stood. She drew herself up tall. She wished she was not wearing slip-on shoes because they made an undignified wishing sound as she walked. But Ollie stepped aside without making any further jokes. And better still, without any more misplaced words of understanding. He just moved the trolley out of her way and she walked out through the door and passed him with no further acknowledgement. So you think I'm guilty. Those were the words she wished were printed on the back of her fleece warm-up jacket. How does it feel to be so wrong about me? She walked off to meet with the director and, she was sure, the police. Behind her, she heard Ollie wrestle something clattery and institutional-sounding out of his trolley. A mop, probably. She heard the door click behind him and knew herself to be alone in the hallway. Or not quite alone. Mrs. McAndrew's door was slightly ajar, and Stella made out a bright eye in the gap. She asked, Do you know what the zoologist saw when he put his eye to the monkey room keyhole? Another eyeball staring right back. Mrs. McAndrew's door clicked shut. Stella walked on, on to see Mrs. Warren, on to meet the police. They would believe her, she told herself so long as she held herself steady, as long as she was not vague. She had the clues she had found in the letters, or rather, the director had the letters, but they were in her office and could and must be produced, and best of all, Stella had an innocent heart. As she reached the staff room door, she slowed and then stopped. She had nothing. If Ollie, friendly Ollie with his trolley, who knew her and liked her, didn't believe her, she felt dizzy at the thought of so much injustice heaped upon her elderly, innocent head. Across from the staff room, the door to the storage stood open. Inside, she saw the usual stored clutter of cardboard boxes around the art table with its 
concealing green plastic tablecloth. It was underneath that table that she had so recently enjoyed a reviving solitary cup of tea. She wished she had time to make one now, but she did not. She had to tell her story to an uncaring policeman, or two. She imagined meeting and holding both of their stares, yes, staring down first the one and then his partner. Listen, officers, I am not to blame. I did not write those letters. That statement would sound so much stronger if she knew who did write those letters. But she had her wits still, no matter how often the four walls of her little blank room 34 argued against it, no matter that the director kept the keypad numbers from her so that she wouldn't use the front door. She was not helpless, although she was trapped in this empty hallway with Ollie at her back and Mrs. Perdita Warren before her, and no way to fly across the border into Mexico like the innocent hero accused in films from her childhood. Soldier on, then, Stella. Speak the truth. But at that moment, her body must have taken control of her will. Without even a moment's consideration, she turned and nipped into the storage room. Once inside, she did not pause an instant, but lowered herself to sitting and scooted under the table. The plastic tablecloth covered her exit. She folded herself into a sitting position on the floor under the table. Chapter 35 For the second time since her arrival at Fairmount Manor, Stella was hiding under the art table in the storage room opposite the staff room in Daffodil Corridor. She was rather appalled at her action, especially because as a career educator she herself had been in a position of authority throughout most of her life. She supposed that before her time at Fairmount, it must have been at least 70 years since she had crawled under a table to avoid explaining her actions. However, the thing was done now, and as she distributed her limbs about her for maximum comfort, she found herself relaxing in the green light that filtered through the plastic tablecloth, rather like resting from one's travels in a small plasticized forest glade. For a moment, she sat quietly, one hand on her lap and one on the carton of newspapers and outdated magazines she had paged through on her last visit to this magic little spot outside the world. In the green light, her hands looked quite green as well, like a dryad's hands, she mused. Poor lost dryad, longing for her willow tree. She closed her eyes. Since the warden wanted so much to interview her regarding the poison pen letters, she would undoubtedly find Stella, or the police would. But before they did, there would be one heck of a hullabaloo. Her eyes opened wide. Lost elderly woman! Who's responsible? Call the papers! Incompetent administration blamed! 
Stella nodded. That would even things up a bit. She settled in to wait. Mind you, there was not much to do under the table, and still a long while yet until any hue and cry would be raised about her disappearance. She might lean back against the wall and go to sleep, but she wasn't sleepy. She identified this as the blank sort of interval that at one time she would have used used to clean out her handbag, but she had no handbag. She tried to remember what she used to keep in one. Wallet, paperback, lipstick, comb, eyeglasses, pillbox, Kleenex tissues. She blinked. So it was true, what she had once read, that nobody could remember more than seven things. Stella frowned. The number seemed low to her. Then she looked up suddenly and banged her head on the underside of the table. Car keys! And that was eight things remembered. One in the eye for you, then, brain experts. Idly, Stella picked up a magazine from the carton at her side and began to flip through it. It was a fashion issue and not one she had read last time because somebody had been using this one for an art project and had cut bits of it out. For a collage, she supposed. She had an aversion to reading magazines and journals with bits cut out. It was so distracting, wondering what was so much more darned interesting than the parts the snipper had left behind. She picked up the next magazine, and then with a silent oath, tossed it down beside the first. Thoroughly irritated now, she rattled through the pile. Look at this article on arranging kitchen drawers. Half the drawer was snipped out, where you might keep your spatula or knives. Between her last visit to the underside of the art table and this one, somebody and his scissors had had a merry old goal. Stella blinked. She sat up. She banged her head on the table again. A merry old go indeed. Picturing the shadowy figure, scissors in hand, plotting and gluing, Stella took the top magazine. No. Call this periodical what it was. The evidence. For somebody had cut numbers and pictures out of these magazines and glued them onto papers and shoved them under doors. She slid several of the magazines out from under the table and followed them out, tucking them under her arm, the clipped edges hanging down like short but celebratory streamers. She headed out to clear her name. <laughs>